What inspired this message for me this morning is the question of suffering. Uh, I was sitting at uh, the panel, uh, one of the panel discussions of our BRAVE conference, uh, because I was asked to provide some invigorating post-lunch uh, entertainment in order to prevent any uh, post-lunch, you know, any on, one of those drowsiness, uh, uh, you know, in Afrikaans they say, <laughs> so we were the ones called out to be the ones to um, to provide the entertainment, to wake people up, to to prevent any of that drowsiness that creeps up on you. But what followed after the lunch was actually it proved far from sleep-inducing, uh, even for someone who suffers from narcolepsy, because after our little skit, there were two ladies who shared about the suffering that they've experienced personally what they've the suffering that they've seen and the suffering that they've endured and how they deal with that on a daily basis uh, the one lady in a wheelchair was 22 when she was paralyzed from the chest down and she shared a lot about the new identity of being uh, paraplegic um, in her 20s the new identity that was forced upon her the suffering that she endured uh, the rehabilitation and how she had gone on to accomplish amazing things like surfing uh, while being para paraplegic and how she went on skydiving and all sorts of things but how she just embraced this new life and how god helped her through that the other lady um, she is a medical doctor and she has always dreamed of becoming a medical missionary um, in war-torn areas of the world and um, she got married and she had two kids and as you know as you get a family these sorts of things become harder to accomplish and then her husband wanted another child and she was like uh i think two is enough i'm happy with the two but i'll give you a month and we'll see what happens and you know month goes by and and she um gets she, and she started noticing some signs of pregnancy and so she's like okay let's go check this out so she went to see a guy and um she found out that she eventually found out that she was expecting triplets <laughs> so here we have a lady you know five children under the age of three i think it was and so that's the comical side of her tragedy um but on top of that of that um some awful news or not news something um uh, yeah, so on top of that, she, they got the, her husband suffered a stroke. So here yeah, this lady is sitting with five kids, teaching them to walk and eat and talk. And, and her husband needs to go through the same kind of kinds of like um, rehabilit in his rehabilitation, relearn to walk, talk, eat and all these sorts of things. So tragedy just struck them hard. So she eventually went on to become a medic medical missionary. She went with the gift of the giver. She went into Syria. She jumped uh, borders and they did amazing things uh, um, through that work. Um, she, and so she observed some of the world's most horrendous and uh, the, the suffering in the world, uh, that you can imagine. And these were some sobering and powerful testimonies and it really got me thinking about the topic of suffering and especially in light of god uh, in theological terms we call this the theodicy problem 
or the problem of evil. Theodicy, the term theodicy is derived from, from the Greek. Um, the word theos meaning God and the word dike meaning justice or judgment. And it basically asks a question, why is there so much suffering in our world? Especially if God is all powerful, all knowing and all loving. Why is it that we often hear people rejoicing over answered prayers for jobs and relationships and even parking spaces in, in malls, um, while others endure harrow, harrowing realities, even though their knees are also are even are calloused from all their prayers? Why are their prayers not answered? Is God more concerned with Joe Soap finding a girlfriend or a parking space? Than, with, than for those who are dying from hunger or in war-torn areas? Is God more concerned with me finding my keys? Uh, I suffer from ADHD. <laughs> and so if you ask my wife, we're always looking for my keys. So if, and I must say, I've probably prayed a couple of times, like, it's like I thought I lost my keys. There's one time it was missing for like almost a week. It's like, and now I have to go replace my keys. <laughs> um, but I found them in, in my, in my jacket, I think. But um, is God more concerned with me finding my keys than from those who suffer with depression or anxiety or all sorts of suffering? And to make matters worse, if we look at, our, at the world history, uh, we see death, famine, greed, corruption. We see ego. We see war. And we see humans torturing one another. We see humans enslaving one another. We see humans killing one another. If we look at our world you know, if we look at our own country, we see that it's, it's uh, statistically proven that we are the most unequal society in the world, uh, where 10% of the population owns more than 80% of the wealth. And we see rampant corruption. We see horrific stats of gender-based violence. We see desperate people living desperate lives marked by crime. We see a country marked by devastating amounts of suffering, compounding on suffering, compounding on suffering, compounding on suffering. So where are you, God? This is the question of the Odyssey. It's not an easy question to answer. Where are you in the pain we observe and experience? Where are you in our depression, in our mental illness, in our anxiety, in our hunger, in our cold nights on the street, in our abuse? In our rejection, in our dehumanization, God, where are you? These are the real questions. And this is the question that comes to suffering. Where are you, God? And this is the problem of evil. This is one of the biggest reasons many refuse to believe in God. And this is the theodicy problem. And I'm sure many of you have asked similar questions in your own times of suffering as you've endured them. Um, and so let me tell you one thing before I continue. If that is you, if you're in a time of suffering and you are, you, are, you are allowed to ask real questions to God, you are allowed to shout out to him. Many people feel guilty for, for shouting out to God, but, you know, we have the Psalms. They give us a tradition of people crying out to God when it feels like he doesn't care or it feels that he's absent. So be free. God is not a dictator. He's a loving father. And so we can shout out to him when we feel like he's missing. But before we continue, let's look at our passage for today. And that is 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1 to 5. 
and I'll be reading from the NIV. So if you'd like to follow along with me in your Bibles, or you can look up on the screen, it should appear there as well. But let me read for us. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I come to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. Now, this passage really encapsulates so much depth and wisdom about comfort in life through God. Uh, and, that, uh, and that's my goal for this sermon today. It is to leave you with comfort in times of suffering, uh, whether it's past, present, or future. I want to leave you with a map towards comfort during those dark nights. And with, with my map for, the, for these times of suffering, I want to offer you three destinations <clears throat> towards a journey of healing, comfort, and transformation. Those will be my three destinations. Healing, comfort, and transformation. The first destination of the map is knowing the crucified God, that, uh, that we, the, the crucified God that we find in our passage today. Paul says in the first couple of verses of, of our passage, it is, that he doesn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. But in verse two, he says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So to come back to the question of why all these awful things happen in our world, to, pe to the people we love and even to ourselves, to this, I feel obliged to give you an honest answer. And that is, I, I simply don't know. I don't know why this happens to us. I don't know why this happens to you or to your loved ones or even to the people we see on the streets. We look at our history. I don't know. Uh, so I guess we could just back up and go now, hey? Shortest sermon ever. <laughs> or maybe we do communion now and then we go. No, I think, I think it's important to be honest about that. Uh, about the fact that we don't know. Uh, I really don't think we know. Um, I don't think we know why there's so much evil in our world today. Many theologians and pastors will sling mud at one another, will uh, <laughs> write books and articles and blogs and, and sermons and try to give persuasive answers. And, um, but I think these attempts of, at answering the question just boils down to two things and um, they either boil down to platitudes or vague um, toxic positive comments um, or they just seem to inadequately acknowledge the sheer magnitude of people's experiences of real tangible suffering all in service of maintaining a view of their God or their view of God which both of these actually just minimizes people's actual pain and suffering uh, all the, in the service of holding up this image of God. And in the process, we actually just cause more suffering. God doesn't need us to be his advocate. He needs us to love one another and be there for one another. And that being said, I do believe Christian spirituality, Christian spirituality has something to offer in this question. 
something that goes beyond academic or intellectual or uh, explorations or comforts. And I think it gives us a real embodied comfort. And this is what I want to offer you today as we deal with this complex problem. Like I said, I don't have eloquent answers, as Paul says in his passage as well. But I do have this for you. I have Jesus Christ and him crucified. For you. You see, eloquent answers do not satisfy the realities of our pain. Only Jesus on the cross offers us with healing and transformative comfort. There's a German theologian, his name is Jürgen Moltmann. He'll pop up on the screen there just now. Uh, he was born in 1926. And he's still alive today. He's 97 years old. Uh, that means he grew up in the post-World War I area. And he went through all of the evils of World War II. And due to his upbringing, upbringing in, a, in a nationalist home, he found himself becoming a, a German nationalist during the rise of Hitler. And he even served in the Nazi military for, I think, four years. But he only actively served for one year and ended up being captured um, and spent three years in a British prisoner of war camp. During this time, he was handed a Bible by a British chaplain. Uh, and at first, he just read the Bible out of sheer boredom. And um, yeah, until he discovered the Psalms and the Gospels, uh, where he saw this tradition of suffering and shouting out to God, and um, until he dis until he discovered discovered this crucified God, the suffering Messiah, um, and this placed Moltmann on a trajectory of becoming one of um, the most important theologians in the twentieth century speaking into real human issues from an academic point of view. Uh, it was in his time as a, of the prisoner of war, where he just contemplated the suffering that he saw on the battlefield, the suffering that he saw the Germans enacting on the Jewish people, the suffering that he endured as a prisoner. And he found these gospels and the, um, he found Jesus and it transformed him. And one of the most significant moves that Moltmann makes in his book is that, that he takes theology outside of the realm of philosophical constructions. Now, this might sound vague to you or why is this important? But this is huge because the early church fathers were very much influenced by Greek philosophy. And um, as a result, they built foundations um, these philosophical foundations about the character of God and, and it really became abstract theology. And, um, and many of the consequential theological thought built on that, on those foundations. And even today we suffer from escaping it. Uh, not that we have to escape all of it, um, but this really impacted theology for centuries. And one of the key categories that they created early on was the doctrine of divine impassibility. Uh, the doctrine of divine impassibility says that God being perfect, and un being perfect and unchangeable cannot be influenced by experiences or emotions uh, such as pain or suffering or sorrow caused by another being. And so proponents of this view would say that Jesus on the cross was suffering in his human nature, not in his divine nature. 
but as you can see already by just indulging that thought, we go from the real, true God-forsaken pain on the cross and we go into abstract and philosophical conversations that's more easy to digest. We move away from discomfort and pain to comfortable reflections. We sanitize the gruesome reality of the cross. And Moltmann does a good job at showing how it is actually the Greek philosophy that has contaminated Judeo-Christian views of God. Um, and it was the early church fathers who did, who did this out of fear because they saw that God can either suffer or he can't. And if he can suffer, then he would just be a weak God. He can change for good or bad. He, can, he doesn't have a moral compass necessarily. Or he can be overthrown by other more powerful um, beings, forces. But Moltmann points out that this is a false dichotomy because there is a third way. This is binary thinking. This is dualistic thinking. Moltmann says the third way is where God voluntarily lays down his life and allows him to be affected by his creation. How powerful is that? And I have to agree with Moltmann on this because if we give in to the philosophical abstractions on this side, then we lose a crucial element about who God is on this side. And that is the crucified, suffering God. Which is to say, God knows pain. He knows suffering because he suffered the, uh, the uh, unjust and false accusations from religious elites as well as the political elites in the Roman Empire. And ultimately, he suffered the religious and state-sponsored execution on the cross. Now, you might be asking, what is the significance of, of this in my suffering? Why is it important for God to suffer in order for me to find comfort, healing, and transformation in my suffering? How is this theological deep dive into God's suffering relevant to me? Well, that brings us to our next destination on our map, and that is the comfort found in solidarity. What does that mean? Well, Jesus on the cross, suffering in complete anguish, is God saying to us that I'm in solidarity with your suffering. He doesn't say this to you. He doesn't say to you that you are suffering because you lack faith. Many churches will tell you that, or that it's because of your sin even. Many people will tell you that, or that he's testing you, or that he's putting you on trial, or that he's refining you. Many of us have these ideas about suffering. It's like when we go through difficult times, oh, God is refining me, or he's testing me. Or that, or you'll hear some churches say to you that you're not giving enough, so you'll face suffering. You don't have enough faith. No, no. Picture this, that in the depths of your suffering, God doesn't simply offer explanations or platitudes from afar. He isn't missing. No, he steps right into the very heart of your story. He is intimately connected to your pain. How? Because he knows what it means to suffer. Because he has felt the crushing weight of losing loved ones. He knows the bitter taste of betrayal of a friend. He knows the searing ache of homelessness. 
He knows the gnawing pangs of hunger and thirst. He knows what it means to be arrested and accused, falsely accused. He knows the life-altering destruction that comes from getting in the way of powerful religious and political institutions. And ultimately, he knows what it's like to endure the most grotesque pain and torture that we can imagine as he was executed by the Roman Empire and the religious elites of his day. You see, it's on the cross that we see the true heart of God. A God that says, I am with you in this storm. That's a God worth following. That's why I'm still a Christian. Uh, I was speaking to Bart. I don't know if any of you know him. He comes to the nine o'clock service. He's on our council as well. So you'll probably see his photo pop up on the back there sometime soon. He is a gynecologist. He's really good at his job. Um, he's specializing in oncology at the moment. Um, but he was, he was telling me um, that uh, he was telling me that in a conversation re- recently that as a gynecologist, uh, he was always super objective. Like someone walk into his office, he deals with them 30, 30 minutes of time and deal with their issues and, um, uh, and had a very objective interaction with them as a medical practitioner. But then he, him and his wife fell pregnant and they went through a nine month, the nine month long haul, not the 30 minute. <laughs> uh, and so every time he, you know, like you feel a little cramp, you, they freak out so they go do a scan because he can he's a gynecologist <laughs> so they did many of those scans but um but he started realizing that the story of this person that he sees only 30 minutes of at a time is actually a nine-month journey behind the scenes and so his experience as he sees his wife going through this journey he sees a behind, he got a glimpse behind the door behind his office in the lives of these women. And so in a sense, he started to, to have solidarity with them. So that changed his medical practice because now he knows that the 30 minutes is only what he gets to see into, but there's a story behind. So he's a much better doctor for having gone through uh, this journey. Uh, and this is what I mean by solidarity. This is what, I, what it means to have God, uh, to have a God who knows what, what pain is. It means he knows your pain and he is there for you in it all. And we can, we can glean serious comfort from that. Now, in the midst of your own pain, let this sink in. Let this truth land. That the creator of the universe willingly walked in your shoes, bearing your suffering with every step. His understanding of your experiences are not abstract or distant. It is born out of raw and grotesque experience. God suffered. God knows your suffering. Lean in on this truth in your suffering. God is not giving you a lecture when you suffer. He is in solidarity with you through it all. So when life feels too heavy to bear, remember that you're not alone. The, the very essence of divinity has embraced the depth of humanity's suffering and pain. Allow him to embrace you in your darkest moments, knowing that you are seen, that you are known, and that you are dearly loved. 
Now, the beautiful thing about the comfort that we receive in our suffering is that we become the comfort to others. And this brings me to my third and final destination of our map towards comfort and transformation. And that is that we are transformed by Christ's solidarity in our pain. And we are transformed into a cruciform life. What does that mean? Uh, it means that we don't remain passive in our pain, in our suffering. It means that the comfort that we get from Christ in our suffering, knowing that he knows our pain and our suffering, that comfort heals us. So we're healed by our wounded healer, Jesus Christ. And in the process, we actually become small wounded healers to others who go through similar pains that, that we went through. And this is what we are called to as a church. We are called to be an institution that empowers one another to, to, um, to bring healing and comfort in times of difficulties. This is why things like the grief share is important. It's because we come together and we bring our own pain and suffering together and we bring healing and transformation by looking at our wounded healer, Jesus. We are not called to gatekeep who can or cannot come into through those doors. We are not called to do that. And John, um, I always think about this passage in John, he writes that uh, Jesus didn't come down to condemn the world. And I always think like, then we are not called to condemn the world. We are called to love the world like Jesus loved the world. We are called to imitate Jesus, to take on the cruciform life. We are called into the story that doesn't justify or explain away people's suffering, but we are called into the story that works to upend suffering. You see, the story of Jesus didn't end on the cross. Maltman in his book says that the Easter appearance of the resurrected, resurrected Jesus invites us into the story that, that seeks to destroy death. So when we live this story, then we become agents of transformation, reconciliation and healing. We become a sanctuary for those who are suffering. We, we can't do that if the church is fake. If we are all dressed up and hiding our pain behind bright smiles, we can't be real. I call it uh, Colgate Christianity. <laughs> You look at Colgate uh, ads, you see all these white smiling, white teeth through big smiles. We can't be that as a church. We can have fun and we must have fun, but we must be a real. The late uh, popular theologian, um, Rachel Held Evans said this, we Christians don't get to send our lives through the rinse cycle before showing up to church. We come as we are, no hiding, no acting, no fear. We come with our materialism, we come with our pride, our petty grievances against our neighbors, our hypocritical disdain for, um, for those judgmental people in the church next door. <laughs> uh, we come with our fear of death, we come with our depression, we come um, and our desperation to be loved, our troubled marriages, our persistent doubts, our preoccupation with status and image. We come with our addictions to substances, to work, to affirmation, to control, to food. We, we come with our 
differences, be they political, theological, racial, or socioeconomic, we come in search of a sanctuary, a safe place that shed, to shed the masks and exhale. We come to air our dirty laundry before God and everyone, because when we do it together, we don't have to be afraid. And this is the fellowship of difference. We don't have to fit in here. We just belong. We need to cultivate the space where people just belong. With all our quirks, our trauma, our fears. This is a place for all. And this is our calling to make those sojourners out there. Those who enter through our doors feel at home. To embrace them. To give them comfort. And to give comfort to those who are suffering. We are called to be a community who owns our pain who owns our suffering and brokenness and find healing in our wounded healer, knowing that he suffered, knowing that he knows our suffering. That's our first step. And then finding solidarity in that and being transformed in that process. That's the next destination. And then becoming many wounded healers to those outside, to those amongst us. That's our final destination. We become wounded healers like our divine wounded healer healed us.